0: to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show submit a question access educational material or even take a quiz you can visit us on hightruths.com and now i am so excited for an expert ready to share high truths get ready for an interesting conversation ahead the first question for our high truths expert comes from a first-year medical student in maryland let's hear from eric russell
1: hi dr lev really enjoy your high truths podcast My name is Eric Russell. I'm a first year medical student in Maryland. Uh, And my question for the experts is, can we really conclude that marijuana is dangerous when we're still learning about it? Doesn't the government limit research on marijuana?
0: Thank you, Eric Russell, for your question. And it's so nice that we're reaching medical students. And Eric, you must be just a few weeks or months into being an MS-1. Remember the congratulations on this monumental accomplishment as you may be neck deep into memorizing an infinite amount of materials. You're in it for the long haul. And I can tell you as a doctor uh, of 30 years, it's very much worth it. The perfect expert we have for the question that Eric Russell is presenting us is the editor of the very first medical textbook on cannabis. It is called Cannabis in Medicine, an Evidence-Based Approach. Dr. Ken Finn is with us from Colorado. He is a practicing pain and physical medicine and rehabilitation physician from Colorado Springs. His group specializes in non-operative treatment of painful spinal disorders and other muscle conditions. Dr. Finn, you are incredibly accomplished, and I will post your bio on the High Truths website. And welcome to the show. Welcome to High
1: Truths. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Dr. Finn, we have several things in common besides our work on, on drugs and marijuana. Uh, we both uh, started our careers in the same great state of Texas. Uh, you're class of 90, University of Texas in Houston. I'm class of 89 from San Antonio. There were some brutal moments there, right? I don't know how it was for you.
1: I really enjoyed my medical training in Houston, and uh, you know I've spent some time in San Antonio. And if, if you want some good Tex-Mex, uh, my roommate from San Antonio, his cousin owns Bolner's Meats. Plug for Bolner. Uh, they'll mail you the best skirt steak you'll ever have.
0: Oh, well, sounds delicious. Ken, you and I went to school like 30 years ago, and Eric now is studying me- medicine, has a great question for us, and I I don't envy him because he has 30 years more of medical material to learn than than you and I had back then. But you are, Dr. Finn, a great defender of science, research, patient safety, a coveted speaker from around the country, and I thought you are the perfect person to answer Eric Russell's question on marijuana uh, research. So, as the author of the very first textbook on cannabis and medicine, let's divide Eric's question a bit and ask you: Do we have enough research on marijuana?
1: Well, let me let me preface my answer with, you know, how I got here. I mean, I never intended to be an expert in marijuana. I really. The reason I got here is because my patients, you know, once Colorado uh, voted to have medical marijuana back in the year 2000, so 20 years ago, we voted on it uh, as a medical alternative. Um, You know, I started seeing patients come to my office using marijuana for pain, and they they were on huge doses of opioids for pain, which is a whole other problem that we can discuss. So... and clinically it wasn't making any sense, you know, why are these patients presenting to me with high levels of pain, high doses of opioids, using marijuana for pain, it wasn't, nothing was helping them. So as a result, I started doing my own education and research and reading and Googling and PubMed, and ended up on the Colorado State's Governor's Task Force for Amendment 64, when we legalized it. I spent four years on the state's Medical Marijuana Scientific Advisory Council, I've began speaking across the country and in other other countries. I testified at the Canadian Senate on their marijuana bill and every time I spoke I saw a deer in the headlights from the members of the audience that included law enforcement, medical providers, uh, uh, DEA, uh, lawyers, And, and so that was kind of the impetus for creating this book because there was when I looked online to find, you know, is there a resource for medical providers on the use of marijuana in medical conditions, there really wasn't anything. So over time I was able to corral a bunch of people to that were experts in their field because I did not write anything, uh, and then create this book. So an answer to your question is there's been research on this substance for decades. Uh, you can go to clinicaltrials.gov and put in marijuana and you will find tens of thousands of research articles that have already been published. Uh, interestingly, when I before, right before I published my book, I was able to read a book by a woman by the name of Peggy Mann. I don't know if you and I have had that conversation regarding Peggy, uh, but Peggy was a journalist from the early 1980s. And I actually, didi- part of my dedication page was to, you know, any, any person that has lost a loved one to any substance of, of addiction, which includes marijuana, and to Peggy Mann and other pioneers in research on this issue. She went around the country to University of Mississippi, to places in California, in New York, that were doing research back in the 70s and early 80s, and she published a book called Pot Safari. And when I read her book, I was astounded that the stuff that was in her book is in my book, 40 years later. She actually wrote another book called Marijuana Alert and actually received the Congressional Medal of Honor for her work in marijuana journalism back nearly 40 years ago. So do we need more research? I think we do need more research. Um, And the reason we need more research is because Of public health and safety primarily, uh, because the products today are not what they were 40 years ago. I support doing scientific rigor, uh, proving things are um, good for you or not good for you. Put it through the muster of uh, clinical trials. I think those are very important. Uh, Do we need more? Do we need to know more about the plant and the components of the plant? I think we do. Uh, But there already has been a mountain of research already on this plant and its components.
0: So that's very interesting. First of all, I, again, your book, I keep it on my desk, Cannabis and Medicine. It's my little Bible when I want to go through all the, the different chapter. It's 20 chapters, 554 pages, 72 authors. And I actually went and counted all the references that you have in your book, 2,339 references. And that's just in the book. I'm sure, um, like you were saying, there is a book published 40 years ago um, on marijuana. When we compare it to tobacco, when the Surgeon General had his first uh, committee to advise him before he wrote the advisory on tobacco, he did that based on 7,000 references. Research um, and publications, and it took us, um, you know, a hundred years to get to where we are with um, tobacco. And I hope it doesn't take us that long to make conclusions. So, I agree with you. We always need new, more research. Who doesn't need more research? We, you know, being a physician for so long in each of our specialty. Their studies come out and, and our practice changes. And to our medical student, Eric out there, they say, whatever you're learning now, 50% of it uh, will be outdated and wrong. We just can't tell you which 50%. Um, so yes, we always want research, but that doesn't mean that we can't make some conclusions um, today. And um, so, and, and your opinion on that is that, do we have, based on your book and your um, experience enough to research to um, have recommendations or, or concerns to the public
1: no I, I agree with you as I raised to medical students I mean some things will always hold true uh, the brain is usually inside the head uh, that typically doesn't change um, but there are things in science there's a lot of nuances with with scientific, research and study, and things may change over time. I think this book really is the state of the evidence at this point in time, and I think it will be considered outdated in three to five years, and that's why I think it was very timely. I think it was very important for anybody interested in the issue, because we had a chapter uh, from law enforcement, uh, a legal chapter on what are the implications for medical providers, because across the states, the rules are different and and the qualifying conditions are different, and the products available are different. So things will change over time. But I think there's a foundation of evidence at this point regarding the public harms, the concerns that we have as medical providers regarding the components of the plant. Even Even today, I'm astounded that the scope of this substance is not just you know, I'd rather smoke a joint than have a glass of wine. I'd rather have smoke a joint or a bowl rather than taking a a tablet of oxycodone or Percocet. Uh, It it goes so far beyond this. You know, I have chapters on oncology, palliative care, older people, emergency medicine, cardiology, neurology, psychiatry. This is so broad and so deep uh, that, and I think things will change over time.
0: Right. And we do have to answer this question about research. The In Chapter 2 of your book by Dr. Bertha Madras, um, who's a division of neurochemistry head at Harvard Medical School, she will be on our podcast, so everybody should look out for her episode. But she makes a point that in a 30-year period between 1930 and 1960, there were 109 reports Reports on marijuana. And from the eight years, 2011, 2019, there's 15,269 marijuana manifests, 140% increase in scientific literature. So it's there. There's a lot of research trying to promote therap- and find therapeutical aspects. When people say we want more research, they, they mean that we want to like show how it's good for this or that. And, but I really like what you have to say is we, re- we also have to do the other side. There, there was a report that came from the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine, that they did a report on cannabis, and it was all the ways where cannabis can be beneficial. And for such a scientific report, they completely ignored any potential adverse effects or public health effects. And I think that that's also where we need to focus The other part of Eric's question was, does the government limit research on on marijuana? I have in front of me, um, the information from NIDA. So, right, NIDA is the National Institute of Drug Abuse. They right now have a single growth site for legal research. They can't just go to a dispensary and buy marijuana and, and use it for research. They have to make sure that that plant is pure, that the uh, percentage of THC, CBD, and other components are real. So, they have, you know, a lot of scrutiny and. The plant that they use for research purposes, and for the past many years, they used a single center in Mississippi. Uh, It was the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy, and Dr. Mahmoud El Soli was the one who headed that. Um, And you can actually go to the NIDA website and see how much it costs to buy the plants to do. Uh, your research uh, on marijuana. Uh, I thought it was interesting. Non placebo cigarette, ten ninety six each. Placebo cigarette, thirteen ninety four each. Bulk marijuana, two thousand four hundred and ninety seven dollars per kilogram. It's interesting that NIDA sells cigarettes. That's um, a little bit um, interesting. But things have changed. There was really a call. You know, how come there's only one center? It's not fair. Um, that's limiting research. When people say, Are, you know, the government's not allowing research, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the fact that there's only one place that produces the plant that has a high quality purity um, scrutiny to be used in, in medical research. And March 2020, um, there is the DEA is now reviewing 37 applications to grow marijuana, so that number from one is going to grow up to 37, 38. Um, what's your opinion on on the limit of government research on marijuana?
1: Well, I, I guess I've already answered the question. I'm, I, I support, and you support as well, scientific rigor and research. I think that's kind of uh, a, a no brainer. I think we all should do that. The concern I have is that. Studying a plant or a crop is very, very challenging. Uh, as part of the Scientific Advisory Council in Colorado, you know we approved nine million dollars worth of research. One of which, you know, all the all the studies had to get their Marijuana through NIDA had to get DEA approval. You know, it's very, very rigorous to study the plant. One of the studies was involved with Johns Hopkins. And my understanding is that Johns Hopkins pulled out of the study because when they got their Mississippi weed that was labeled as X percent THC, they did their own testing on the plant and it wasn't X. It was X plus, it was X minus. So the problem with studying a plant is that the components will be variable from the stem to the, to the flower, to the bud. It's all, it can be all over the map. I think if you look, at, look at, at the components of the plant, the THC, the CBD, the CBG, all the other hundreds of, of components of the plant, isolate the molecule, study the molecule, because that's how you develop medications. I mean, one of my authors were uh, Dr. Tyler Gaston and Jersey Slavarsky from University of Alabama, Birmingham that wrote my seizure chapter. They were the ones that fast-tracked FDA approval of epidiolexs for pediatric seizure. Um, Their chapter was fascinating. I don't know if you had a chance to read it, but it was probably one of the more scientific, uh, cerebral chapters of the book in my mind. Very well done, but they have a plant, naturally occurring plant product that's free of contaminants. We know how to dose it. It works for a percentage of these kids with seizure. That to me is a much more scientific way to go in terms of study rather than a plant. I mean, we've had, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to pick on um, Taxol as for instance, that comes from the Pacific yew tree, but people aren't growing yew trees in their backyard in mass quantities to study the component of the yew tree as a breast cancer medication. The, the component of the yew tree that does help treat breast cancer has been isolated, studied, proven, and available. That's the road I think we need to go down.
0: Yeah, and and you're absolutely right. There, are, uh, we have. I mean, throughout the century, have used plants um, for medicinal purposes. But we are we've e- evolved to getting isolated the right amount, so you know exactly what's. Going on. If somebody has heart disease, we don't tell them to go smoke an oleander plant, right? We tell them to buy digoxin so we know how many milligrams you're getting and how many times a day, and that there's no other impurities in it. We could also write for CBD. Right? You've, I don't know, I have never written for it, but if I wanted to, if I needed to, if I had a patient with Dravet's syndrome or Lenox gastron syndrome, we could write for Epidiolex and we would have the confidence as physicians that they're getting real CBD and know how many milligrams and how many times a day. And we would be, um, we would check for drug interactions and, and review other people's our patients' medications to make sure if we're prescribing a new medicine, it's not causing problems.
1: Well, I'm glad you brought up Epidiolex, which is the only FDA-approved natural CBD on the planet, uh, approved for narrow-spectrum pediatric seizure, Dravet syndrome, and Lennox-Gusto. I don't know if you've ever done this or not, but go to the Epidiolex website. I would would encourage anybody listening, go to the website, look at the warnings and precautions. The first thing that comes up is hepatocellular injury. This causes liver damage. The second thing that comes up is suicidal behavior and ideation. The third thing that comes up is somnolence and sedation. I mean the CDC issued a warning earlier this year on the use of CBD products in driving because of sedation. This is the part that people don't hear about and this is also concerning because the CBD products that are widely available found in grocery stores and coffee shops all across the country. These products are poorly tested, poorly regulated, and frequently contaminated. And, you know, you have patients that may have a, maybe taking a particular drug, if they're using the non-FDA approved CBD, who knows what's in it and who knows how that patient is going to react to ingesting that product. I mean, just anecdotally, I had a patient who was on chronic anticoagulation for blood clots in their leg, was on, um, started gobbling up a bunch of cbd products and ended up after a severe coughing fit with what's called a retroperitoneal hematoma with a subsequent lumbar plexus injury so we had a nerve injury on top of it and his inr which is the international it's it's the international normalized ratio the inr it's a test of how thin your blood is and people that have valve replacements about 2.8 to 3.0 is how thin you want their blood so they don't clot this guy's inr was 7.8 7.8 which is I've never seen that in another patient in my 30 years of practice, an INR that high.
0: I've seen that in my practice. Um, We have clinics that people who are on Coumadin, a blood thinner, for whatever reason, they have to get their INR checked on a regular basis. And they've had several patients come in and their INR is crazy high. They are at risk of spontaneously bleeding anywhere like your patient did um, in their their back. And uh, it's from their marijuana or CBD. Those are serious drug interactions. And I really think that we actually need to have warning labels like we do when you go to the pharmacy and there's a warning label, don't use with milk or grapefruit juice or alcohol. We should have warning labels for some of these medications not to use with CBD, not to use with um, cannabis. Um, there are, you know, hundreds of drug interactions. It's, it's not so simple. You have to really um, be careful. Um, and, and your your example uh, is perfect in answering Eric's question is, is marijuana uh, dangerous? And I, I think, you know, even if we want more research, we'll always want more research. I think we have enough to say with these drug interactions, for example, that that is definitely a danger. I mean, nobody should be taking CBD or cannabis if they're on medications without first checking for uh, medication interactions. Um, and to kind of answer his question is, can we, what can we say about the dangers of, of, of marijuana? There's all sorts of claims for health. What are, what's the, the science and data uh, on, on the risks and the impact?
1: I, I think it's very important that, that the public is educated on the fact that marijuana can potentially be dangerous. Is it as dangerous as alcohol or to opioids? I always get this argument um, you know, people typically don't die of respiratory depression just because of where the receptors of the, of the endocannabinoid system are. However, there is a lot of data that does show there are potential dangers, somewhat le- sometimes lethal. So don't let anybody fool you and say marijuana has never killed anybody. That is not true. That is completely false. I mean, Robert Page, who was one of my authors uh, who did the drug-drug interaction chapter with Jackie Bainbridge and Grace Chin, actually was the lead author on the American Heart Association paper that came out in August of this year. And then the American Heart Association took a position that the use of cannabis might put you at risk for cardiomyopathy, sudden death, stroke, acute myocardial infarction or heart attack, and peripheral vascular disease. So don't let anybody say it's safe, because there are patients that may be at risk using cannabis. If you talk about drug interactions in my world of pain, buprenorphine is the medication prescribed for patients with opioid use disorder. Very frequently, patients with opioid use disorder or uh, opioid misuse are frequently using cannabis. Buprenorphine is one of the nine major drug interactions with CBD. And so that's what, for sedation and potentially respiratory depression. So again, this substance goes across many aspects of medicine. If you look at the psychiatric literature, the risk of cannabis-induced psychosis, uh, where people can commit suicide or even homicide when they are psychotic on these high-potency marijuana products. There, it, Generally speaking, I would say, generally it's safe. I think people try to use responsibly but it's not a safe medicine it's well I wouldn't even consider it medicine it doesn't meet the definition of medicine if you really want to push the envelope uh, but the I tell people the- don't
0: use the word medicine with cannabis unless you put it in quotes I mean really anytime you and I prescribe any medications uh, a Tylenol uh, an over the counter Benadryl we have to do a risk benefit um, you know now, calculation um in 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 really. And there's a fine line of any medicine being helpful and being poisonous. And when we take that calculation anytime we recommend or prescribe anything. And, um, you know. Well, there
1: are, there are cannabis-based medications. And you're talking about things like Epidiolex for pediatric seizure, but it's not approved for other conditions. You have the natural and the Viximals, the Sativex of the world that's not available in the U.S., which is a one-to-one THC, CBD ratio, you have the synthetic and semi-synthetic thc's that nobody asks me for uh, like dronabinol or or Nabilone, which is a marinol and sesame um, they're available but nobody wants them they just want the the marijuana products and i can't figure out why i mean i have my own suspicions but you're right if you are making you have to make make a difference between what is a cannabis-based medication which is controlled dose pharmacy window Compared to what is called, quote, and I agree with you, medical cannabis, uh, because cannabis is not, in my opinion, does not meet the definition of what a medication is, uh, because they have not done the adequate safety studies, they haven't done reproducible studies. Um, it, you know, it just doesn't fit the definition of what medicine is. I, I, th-
0: I feel like we need to advocate, get that word medicine back. And especially Eric, who's starting medical school, he's gone through a lot to get there. He's going to have to go through a lot to, 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 to become a physician. If you're going to use the word medicine, it should have the same scrutiny um, as all the other things we use the word uh, medicine for. And
1: I agree because we, I rely, we rely on our pharmacy colleagues To help because there's so many more medications. I did not particularly care much for pharmacology in medical school, Uh, and and it's just changed and evolved so much since then. We have to be, as providers, knowledgeable of what may interact with what our patients are taking, because they can be potentially harmful. I mean, if you look at the cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, where people are frequently vomiting, cyclic vomiting, don't let anybody say nobody's died from this because that is completely false.
0: And that'll be, by the way, another episode we're going to have, um, Dr. Stephen Kampman is a medical examiner and we're going to be asking him that, does anybody die from marijuana? But uh, again, thinking back of our lessons from tobacco, nobody died of smoking a cigarette. It took us many years to people say, hey, these lungs are black. I wonder why they're black. And um, it took us a while. And there was a whole, you know, million, billion dollar industry not wanting us to figure out that those black lungs come from from cigarettes.
1: We were in the middle of, uh, of the vaping epidemic before we were interrupted with COVID. And in the vaping avali deaths, you know, more than 80 percent were either vitamin E acetate or THC.
0: So, um you know, to answer Eric's questions, is marijuana dangerous? Um, again, we have to, yeah, we, we can say yes. And, and um, the American Heart Association uh, paper and statement really, I just thank the American Heart Association so much for, for putting together a rigorous peer-reviewed scientific publication. And, and here are some of the just quotes from that study. The overall death rate for men has gone up 2.3% since legalization. Systolic blood pressure goes up um, for people who chronically use uh, cannabis. Uh, Three-year heart attack rate higher for cannabis user. Three and a half times higher rate for stroke. Um, And, um, you know, 2.3 increase stillbirth rate for neonatal exposure. And they they go on two and a half, two time increase for lung cancer. You know, something, we know that smoking is bad for you. Why do we think smoking nicotine is worse than smoking something else with, you know, 500 different chemicals uh, in it? How could that be Healthier, and then we're gonna we're gonna talk to a, a, an expert and all the issues with, with uh, mental health and psychosis. So, yes, there's definitely dangers. Um, just just like you say, um, Dr. Finn, you know, there's medicinal components in the plant that have you know that are FDA approved and that we can use. But we really have to do the risk benefit of, of what this is doing for our society. Um, what is your goals? for the american public on marijuana
1: i honestly believe the the public has been somewhat duped by the industry a very powerful industry with a lot of money that this is okay that this is safe Uh, if you look at you know because it's safer than alcohol we we have not done a good job with alcohol we have not done a good job with tobacco we're doing a better job with tobacco with education uh, we have not done a good job with opioids, and nobody's been able to answer me, how are we going to do a better job with another substance that acts in the central nervous system and has addictive potential? Nobody's been able to answer that question for me. I don't think we're doing a good job with marijuana. Uh, if you look at the Secretary of State from the state of Oregon, last year, they issued a audit re- their audit report. I don't know if you saw their audit report, from the state of Oregon they've had a very robust medical and recreational program for many many years they're one of the models for the rest of the world in terms of legalizing marijuana for recreational use the secretary of state of Oregon in their audit report said they were only able to have three percent of their dispensaries had a compliance inspection and only one third of their growers so they concluded that they cannot guarantee that the test results are reliable and they don't think that the the products are safe for human consumption. And this is a state that has a very, very robust marijuana program, both medically and recreationally.
0: You know, the um, health department oversees marijuana in California, but no one is really going into these dispensaries and testing the products for contaminants. And we know that fungal contamination is a, is a real a real uh, issue. There was a, a, a patient who's a, a young 30-year-old man um, with bone cancer who's getting chemotherapy, and he died of pneumonia. And when he died, they did a biopsy of his lung and found aspergillus. And then they tested his marijuana and it had the same gene type of aspergillus in his marijuana that he had in his lungs that he died of it.
1: But last week in Denver, they had a recall product that had arsenic in it. Yeah. And you're not going to, you're not going to get the recall unless you register for it. Number one, and Denver Public Health is the only public health department that's testing product regularly. They have yeast, molds, Arsenic, they have thing, uh, something called mycobutanol, which is a, a fungicide, so they, uh, that's, that's residual mycobutanol found on the plant. That is occasionally recalled. I've seen it in California, I've seen it in Colorado. When you heat mycobutanol, it converts to hydrogen cyanide. This is the problem with the industry. These products are poorly regulated, poorly tested, frequently contaminated, multiple potencies. What's in the bottle's not on the label. It's a free-for-all, and I think they need to rein that in and do the scientific rigor when it comes to uh, cannabis-based medications. Give us something that we can use that's been proven to be effective, and we know the safety, the uh, the risk-benefit ratio.
0: I know hot, marijuana is a hot topic. It is for the FDA, but when people say, "Why do we need the FDA?" is because they go through the rigor to make sure that we're what we're taking is 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 safe. What I want for the American public is for you to be informed decision makers. If you're smoking, you know what you know, your risks, you know, your risk of, of cancer and emphysema, addiction, um, and you're making an informed decision. And if you need help, then, you know, we can try to help you quit if you want to do so.
1: Um, I ask ask my patients commonly and I ask my colleagues this commonly. I mean, you bring up a good point. I mean, 9%, the data shows eight or 9% of medical students are regular uses of marijuana. I can send you that study. To me, that's a frightening statistic. Uh, Eric,
0: you hear that? You're not one of them, I'm sure.
1: What? Right. (laughs) Um, How would you feel if you were going to have your gallbladder taken out knowing that your anesthesiologist and your surgeon dabbed last night or shared a few bowls of marijuana last night? Would you be okay having them take your gallbladder out and put you to sleep? The vast majority of people I ask that pointed question to say no,
0: and they say no probably because they know what they feel like um, uh, under the influence. Right. But and that's the point is my my you know the purpose of high truths in this podcast and and any time I go out and lecture is. To make Americans informed decision makers. Um, And I I think, you know, if you have at least the information in front of you, and that's the problem is um, with marijuana, that information is, is not commonly out there.
1: One final comment as it relates to public health and safety, I will call on the Surgeon General and his constituents to issue a black box warning. I think Dr. Adams has been phenomenal, um, but I really would call on him and his team to issue a black box warning regarding use in pregnancy, regarding use in driving, regarding use in adolescence. I mean, the European Pain Federation basically has, I guess, a version of a black box warning. They do not recommend anything over 12.5% THC due to psychiatric effects. That doesn't exist in Colorado. The average is about 17 to 20%. And these high potency products are 95% plus. Um, they don't recommend co-prescribing cannabis-based medications with benzodiazepines and opioids due to um, drug-drug interactions and sedation. So I, I really would call on our leaders to issue a warning on the use of cannabis for in a variety of Of situations
0: and and having come uh, just from the federal government and the Office of National Drug Control Policy, I I I know across federal government. They're very um, concerned about this um, marijuana. I think Dr. Jerome Adams has been very brave and forthcoming in issuing an sure. advisory in marijuana that no one else had to do that in the middle of um, you know political fire and criticism. He didn't let that stop him into speaking the truth. And he specifically says this is not medicine. Um, and uh, the black box warnings come from FDA, and, uh, I've had interesting conversations with them and I've invited an FDA, um, physician to our podcast. We'll see if she gets approved to, to come and be on our show. She may be limited in what she's allowed to say on cannabis, but black box warning, they've been issuing them from the FDA. And that goes back to putting, you know, labels. Don't use this with uh, marijuana, the FD, the black box warning on opioids and benzodiazepine, um if cannabis was really into, uh, a medicine they definitely would be a black box warning but since it's not a medicine they're stuck in that you know catch 22 area but they can they definitely i think aware of the problem and they're they're in this legal loophole that they're trying to to work on yeah. but
1: i also today i believe the ama is actually having if their first meeting with a marijuana task force uh, the AMA actually put out a very nice statement last week saying that, you know, this is what the frustrates me to no end. With COVID, all you hear is, listen to the scientists, listen to the evidence with COVID. But for some reason, marijuana got a free pass. But the AMA is actually meeting with their task force, and they had a very nice article last week that actually said, we need to do the scientific research first. So I do give them, I commend them for that. And
0: I, I think, and really, and shout out to all the medical organizations who are um, raising the public health warning and, and and doing that the American Heart Association, American so- um, Society of Addiction Medicine, um, the ophthalmologist came right away and said, don't use this for glaucoma, um, the, the, um, the American College of uh, OBGYN, the gynecologists, the pediatricians, um, you know, the neurologists for seizures. This is, you know, I see patients all the time. They're using marijuana for their seizures, but they're in the ER having a seizure because that's not the right medicine. They think, you know, because it's for used for these babies with this very rare disease, it's for all types of seizures. So, I really, well, the other
1: thing is that the, there are components of the plant that are pro-epileptogenic, <laughs> and it, 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 you can't predict which patient might precipitate a seizure. And actually some of the studies with these uh, artisanal products in Colorado, some of these kids had worsening of seizures and ended up on a ventilator because their seizures got worse.
0: Right. And uh, absolutely. That's, that's actually the, the worst thing that I see on a daily basis is people having seizures because they think marijuana is is their medicine instead of their other medications. So they stop their other
1: medications.
0: (laughs) It's a problem because it makes them forget to take their other medicines. (laughs) Yeah. So really kudos out to the medical organizations who already, you know, uh, understanding the public health risks and, and doing position statements. I, those go a long way. I, I could tell you, uh, federal officials, that's what they do. They go to the website and see position statements, um, from medical organizations. So I think that that, that's very important work. And, you know, to, to go back to Eric's question, um, there's a lot of research, you know, I, I think we have enough to make statements. Of course, we need more research. Um, the, there's no government limits on, on research. There, there is scrutiny and, on where you can get marijuana that is pure enough and regulated enough to do actual human testing um, for that. And that's for therapeutics. But that, that those kind of studies have nothing to do with what people are using, right? If you're doing a study right. on 3% THC, that's absolutely pure. And we know exactly the ratio that has nothing to do with the dispensary that's selling you 30% THC. I mean, that's or absolutely oranges. Right. It, it would be, you know, my, my, one of my projects that I wanted to do at ONDCP that I never got to do is to have a dashboard for marijuana. Like we do, um, on opiates. I'm always very jealous of other, you know, diseases, um, so for for marijuana, I was jealous of opioids, that you have all these data points. You know, we know how many uh, prescriptions are out there. We know how many deaths, hospitalizations, interactions. We have all that data. And so very early in the opioid epidemic, I I predicted and, and, and still hold through that there'll be a beginning and an end to at least the prescription part because that's very regulated and we have the data. But with marijuana, we don't have the data. And for us to... Um, to document that and and it'll be a small, it won't take us 100 years like it did with tobacco to see the light. It maybe take us 50 years if we had that, but, but we first need to document that. With that, Dr. Finn Thank you so much for joining us on High Truths and sharing your knowledge. We will see you again and um, when you come and talk to us about pain and your specialty in pain. Um, do you have any final advice for Eric, our, our caller, our listener?
1: Study hard. And, you know, I, 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 I can tell you that my four years in medical school were probably four of my best years of my life before I had got married and had kids. It was really four wonderful years of learning and and I I would not trade it in for anything else in the world. So I would, my advice to him as a medical student is take advantage of every opportunity you have as a medical student.
0: That's wonderful. And my advice, Eric, is the same I would share with my two daughters who are medical students as well. Um, You're entering a noble profession in medicine, a profession of service. Um, It's not just a job, it's a calling, and for me, the sweat and tears it it took me to get here are are worth it. You are helping people when they they really need it and continue to ask great questions because being a doctor means a life's worth of perpetual learning and, and you're definitely starting in the right direction. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. And the National Marijuana Initiative, raising awareness of the issues surrounding marijuana so citizens and policymakers can make well informed decisions. NMI supports the high-intensity drug trafficking areas, HIDA's, as they work to carry out the National Drug Control Strategy. If you would like to sponsor a show, we would be honored and grateful. Please contact us on Hightruths.com. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us five stars and subscribe so you won't miss any of our informed, packed weekly shows. Visit our website, Hightruths.com, to submit a question Take a quiz or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, and we hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.